Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and welcome to Scholarly Communication, the podcast about how knowledge gets known. Scholarly Communication is an open and ongoing conversation about how communication does knowledge. The premise of the podcast is this. Communicating is not a transferring, as if knowledge might be vacuum-sealed and delivered totally conserved brain-to-brain. No, the premise of the podcast is that research communication is a place in time where people meet to represent and to recreate the things they claim to know. Communication is meaning, as knowledge is too. And meaning is not something we send to receive, it's something that we make. I am your host, Daniel Shea. I invite you to listen to authors of research, to editors at journals, to scholars whose work addresses written communication generally and specifically, and how the words of science make known the real world. My guest today is David Shepard, editor-in-chief of the Journal of Systems and Software, together with Paris Avierio. David Shepard is associate professor at Louisiana State University. Prior, David worked as a researcher at ABB Corporate Research and also as associate professor at Virginia Commonwealth University. David's research focuses on bridging the gap between academic ideas and viable industrial tools, which explains, too, his work at a successful software tools spinoff and, as well, his significant contributions to popular open source projects. Since 2018, David has held the position of editor-in-chief at the high-impact journal Systems and Software. Systems and Software, published by Elsevier, was established in 1979 and has since published important research in information systems, software, computer networks and communications, and computer science applications. So let's begin today's episode, David Shepard and Systems and Software on Scholarly Communication. Hi, David. Welcome to the program. Hey, thanks for having me. One of the uh, target audiences of this podcast is basically publishing researchers, and in particular, early career publishing researchers. So when I have an editor on the show like yourself, I'm really interested in giving you the chance to sort of bring some of these people behind the scenes, because I I work together, as my listeners will know, I work together helping scientists write, and I notice that people who are in their PhD stage, or maybe just entering their postdoc stage, that it's, it's not exactly a black box, although for some of them it is a black box, this whole publishing mechanism, but it's certainly not something that they're very closely familiar with. So it's wonderful to have an editor here to sort of give us a look at the day of somebody who is bringing these papers, bringing this uh, research out into print for today and to the digital world. So could you maybe take us a take us on a bit of a tour through your editorship in, in some concrete ways? Sure, yeah. Um, for me in Paris, we, you know, we work very closely together. We meet once a week for about an hour and discuss things related to the journal. We also spend time independently uh, handling papers. And I would say for people that are kind of new to the field or young in publishing, the the way it you know, the way it goes, it's it's nothing fancy. Papers are incoming to me in Paris. We are in charge of handling them in terms of desk rejects and assigning them to editors. Uh, so we do a lot of screening. We screen every paper ourselves. One of us does. And then we assign it to an associate editor who gets reviewers. Those reviewers write reviews. And then the associate editor is in charge of making a decision and sending it back out. So there's nothing magic or anything. It's just a lot of people uh, answering a lot of emails and reading a lot of reviews and making decisions based on those reviews. But um, there's a lot of work that goes on behind the scenes. Yeah, no, it certainly sounds like it, particularly the initial screening. And um, I could imagine that there's a number of things that authors could do there to make your lives easier. (laughs) Um, Not only in the manuscript, perhaps also in the, the writing that goes around the manuscript, the so cover letter or the um, the email in which it's communicated and so on. Um, could could you give us a sense of what an author submitting to uh, systems and software is also writing on top of just the manuscript that you're seeing and also using to make decisions with? Right. So the cover letter, in my opinion, is only 
is only really important when you're doing a kind of a submission of something that has been rejected either from a conference or another journal. Um, in this case, the cover letter should somehow address like how the paper has changed from these earlier versions so that especially if you get the same reviewers, they have an idea of how you've addressed some of their concerns. Uh, so the cover letter is very important on a resubmission of a previously rejected paper. However, if it's a brand new paper that you're just submitting for the first time, the cover letter can be very short, uh, just have a few highlights, and is not quite as important. And it's interesting that you mentioned the the sort of cycle, uh, and this is, is the, this is common throughout so many different fields in science, the cycle between conferences and, and journals, and then, of course, reviewer pools. The more specialized a topic becomes, the, you know, quite naturally, the narrower the pool of reviewers. So you may end up with the situation you've just described where someone coming from a conference rejects meets at least one of the same reviewers that, you know, is part of that rejection process. So um, I, I suppose it would be interesting to hear as well uh, a little bit more about the reviewer network that's in place and the criteria used to pick people out and, and the interaction and, and workflow that occurs between editors, authors, reviewers. Yeah, so we try and have a pretty large editorial board. The editorial board is is basically who is going to do our reviews and we use the performance of people in the editorial board to select people that will become editors in the future. And then we have two levels of editors. Uh, so the first level, you know, handles a lower number of papers and then the top level handles even more papers. Uh, so we have a kind of a hierarchy at JSS where we are promoting people from the board to editor level one to editor level two and we do that based on performance at each level so we really you know we really have a big set of reviewers but we're monitoring their performance closely uh, moving up the best ones to the next level and so on so this means that um, if i'm understanding cor correctly that in your level one you're deal uh, or perhaps actually level two but you can correct me uh, you're dealing with a pool of the re reviewers whom also associate then with software and systems uh, systems and software excuse me yeah so um just to make it clear we have this large set of reviewers which is the editorial board that's probably 50 or 60 people uh, then we have a set of maybe six to 10 level one editors and maybe about 12 level two editors. And um, so you start off kind of in this editorial board. If you're doing a lot of great reviews uh, and it doesn't have to be a lot, but just high quality reviews consistently, uh, then you would move up to level one editor. And then if you're handling papers on time and making good decisions, then you would eventually move up to level two editor. Yeah, hey, interesting. All right, um, I'm, I'm I'm just intrigued by that because there are very many journals also which source their reviewers just you know in the pool of science, let's say. Um, but but here at um, Systems and Software, you have a, a more yeah hierarchical system as 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 you described it. How, how did this has this always been the practice as far as you know it or? Uh, this is the practice that me and Paris have basically established uh, during our tenure and. We, of course, we also pull from the general pool of just scientists. But what we find is if you have more of a community feeling and uh, regular reviewers, you can start to, you know, coach them on how to write better reviews, increase the quality of the reviews. And uh, if you're rewarding people for giving good reviews over time, you know, the, just the incentives align in such a way that the process is, is better. This is fantastic. Wow. Because, I mean, I've, I've spoken with very many computer scientists here on this program, and one of the things that they come back to is despite advances, despite obviously great reviewers out there, I'll often give an open-ended question at some point, what would you change in the research process? And, and very many of them will put their finger on the review process. But uh, you, you have here at Systems and Software a really intriguing way of, as you say, creating a community feeling and ensuring a level of quality in reviews, which... Uh, seems to answer some of, of, of that criticism, but could you perhaps take us a little bit behind the, the reasoning or the experimentation that led to that setup? It's, it's very, very interesting. 
Yeah, I mean, of course, it. so this kind of approach addresses review quality and helps give people incentives to increase their review quality. Uh, it's not a perfect system, though, of course. You know, we still have reviewers that are never promoted because their review quality maybe isn't hitting the bar, and sometimes people are busy and things like that. Uh, but we really wanted to at least have a system where the incentives were encouraging you to do good reviews uh, and encouraging you to have a sense of accountability. And, it, and and what jumps out at me there is also this idea of a, of a community, a sense of affiliation in a sense, yeah, that you want to provide systems and software with, you know, great papers, basically, um, which, which must be, you know, a motivation then for a reviewer. To, 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 to rise in the ranks, as, as you might say, uh, which, which brings me to a, a, another interesting point when it comes to journals, and in particular in the computer science field, because there is next to it the conferences in a way that's not so well known in, in other fields, chemistry, biology, physics, and so on, where the conference is much more like a workshop type venue, whereas in computer science, it's entirely full-blown research papers that are being presented there at, at the conferences. And, and yet you, here you are at a research journal in the computer science field. So um, could, could you tease us to tease that out a little bit for us as, as a very experienced editor at a journal in computer science, how the journals and the conferences interact and how content might differently show up in one or the other um I suppose it's just sort of an open-ended question there. Yeah, well, the reason I put my time towards a journal instead of putting time towards conferences, you know, I've, I've made that intentional decision to put as much as my time towards helping a journal than towards helping a conference is because you can actually kind of build something in a journal. So if you volunteer to even be a PC, you know, program chair at a conference, which I've done before, um, you can have a great impact, you know, on a single year, maybe that one year you can have like a really nice review process, but then the next year, the review process may drop off, you know, significantly in quality or it may get way better. It depends on, uh, who's, who's the PC cherry next. But the problem is like, it's like, it's like electing a president and then changing every month. You know, it's like, it, it's too much turmoil, too much changeover and you don't have time to really learn the job. So in a journal setting, you know, you have time to learn the job, you have time to try and make it uh, as consistent as possible and just to do higher quality, you know, science. I've, I've heard other people talking also about how there are signs in the conference round out there in, in computer science that you know, it's becoming journalized in a sense. Um, <laughs> one one person we had on the program uh, from machine learning, uh, Gang Wang, who's fairly high profile, um, was also saying that you know, with the addition of new deadlines and um, you know, four submission minimum of four submission dates per per year and so on, that you know, that's slowly coming about. Th there seems to be a good argument in what you're saying for for transferring to a more journal like uh, setting. Yeah, I mean, I personally, I prefer to submit to journals whenever I can, you know, not only because I don't have to travel, you know, I have young kids, I don't want to travel any more than I have to, but, and it's also not good for the environment. Uh, there's a lot of reasons that traveling is actually not going to help your kind of scientific career. Of course, when you're young, you need to network a bit to get jobs. So I understand that we need to still have some kind of conferences and things like that, but to actually do the science and just do a good job at the science it, conferences don't make a ton of sense. Like it just, you know, if you just stay home, do your research, you're going to produce better science than if you're spending, you know, up to half of your year traveling or recovering from traveling or planning for traveling. You know, it's just a huge waste of time. I mean, also at the conference, which is where this networking is meant to be happening that you refer to. And of course, it's one of the things that comes to very many people's minds when they say conference um, is that I've heard lots of people complain about the presentations <laughs> that, uh, you know, either the quality or, you know, the lack of 
um, interest because having read the paper, well, there you are. You already know that, right? You can't get into the level of detail on the 10 minutes that you're allotted on stage that you can in the paper. So there seems to be a loss of, you know, content value. Yeah, the, I think the real problem at conferences is the density of information. So I think somebody that does this well is the Kaya community. They have a 30-second preview, which you submit with your paper. And so, you know, sometimes at lunch, I could, I'll watch like, you know, a bunch of 30-second previews of papers in the Kaya conference. And then I'll pick out, you know, some papers that I want to follow up on and read. And that's a great way to to present and have a lot of information, you know, come at me really quickly. But when you go to just a general conference track and it's like, you know, 15, sometimes even 30 minutes on the same paper. Uh, if it's a good paper and a good presenter, great. You learn a lot and it's great, but you know, at least half the time the presenter is maybe not the best and the paper is not something that you're interested in. And so then, you know, computers come out, people stop paying attention and it's, you know, a huge waste of everyone's time. Another major difference there between the conference and and the journal is that, uh, and this is something I, I actually work now with computer scientists helping, helping them write. And this is something that kind of threw me in the beginning. I had come from biology and then they only publish in, in journals was that th- there seemed to be a large number of conferences that were kind of kept on a level there weren't very many distinctions made between them. Whereas in, you know, the journal field, there are often very fine distinctions. You know, you want to be in this community, that community, the the, the journal that's pushing this message or that message and so on. There's much more, there seems anyway, and this is part of the question, I suppose. There seems to be a better fit at a journal where the content is more curated as opposed to a conference. Well, yeah, and it really helps with finding reviewers, I think. So, you know, I had an experience lately where I submitted to, I can't remember the name of it right now, but it was something like the Journal of Programming Languages. And it wasn't one that I was very familiar with, um, but it was very appropriate for that particular topic that we were publishing on. And the reviews were really appropriate because there were people kind of first in that type of paper. So it not only helps like, you know... It, it's a bunch of people interested in the same topic. It not only helps push a certain message or a certain research agenda, but it really helps in finding the best reviewers for your paper. People that are interested in that topic have a depth of knowledge, know the state of the art, and can provide meaningful reviews instead of the uh, sometimes random reviews that you get from a conference paper. It's really interesting to hear you coming back to reviews again. And this... uh... This doesn't surprise me. I mean, the peer review system is, you know, what a, a great paper is built upon. You know, I, I don't know. I mean, how many papers can you count in your years that just flew right through without any reviews and got published, right? <laughs> one. <laughs> okay, well, let's see. There you go. I mean, there, it, it happened. It's like a hole-in-one in golf, right? It, it happens sometimes. <laughs> um, but, but to give us a sense of what you look for or, or one of your associate editors is looking for when a review comes back. What is it that, you know, really distinguishes it where, uh, and you can reflect just as you were there on your own research and career as, as an author, but, but let's begin perhaps on the editorial level. What is it that, you know, the editor needs from the reviewer? So I look for a combination of, of details, you know, showing that the person has actually read the paper because a lot of times people will try and skim the paper and then give some feedback and that's certainly not helpful. So I look for a combination of details, but I really appreciate people that do kind of a detailed pass and then they take some time to summarize those details into two to four larger points. I mean, that's the ideal review for me is where it's like, bunch of details but at the top they summarize those details to two or four broader points that really help improve your paper and if this could be worked backwards to the authors because i mean the reviewers can help the editors but you know in turn the authors can clearly help the reviewers i would imagine um so i mean a chain effect starts to show up here um because as you know, this podcast is called Scholarly Communication one of the interests here is is in well what does the text actually end up looking like um how how could or what might be some of the telltale signs of a paper where an author has hit the right level of detail and yet has 
called out those two to four points that the reviewer needs to find anyway on that higher level. Is there anything that, I mean, you could point to in a section of the paper, even perhaps already at the title or the way the introduction is formulated, how long it might be? Um, I'm just throwing out ideas there. Uh, yeah, I wouldn't say that there is like kind of one thing we look for, uh, but there is one thing I, one general um, kind of principle that I think we look at when reviewing papers is whether the the author has followed some templates from papers before them. I mean, we're, you're not writing the first scientific paper in the world, right? There is for your field, for your topic, there's probably some reasonable template to follow. And if you follow that template, you just make your job and the job of your viewers a lot easier because they don't need to kind of guess where the information for certain things is going to be. They know exactly what section it's going to be in. So when people follow these patterns or basic templates uh, for papers, it really helps reviewers uh, to, to find the information that they look for to figure out whether the content is actually good as well as just the form. If you don't follow a template, the problem is like you could still be a great paper, um, just like a little bit harder to read, but it's harder to evaluate, right? Because you have to look around and find the different pieces and put it together. And when you're saying template here, are you imagining then sort of like the IMRAD type structure that people will know from many experimental sciences? Um, or, or do you have something more specific in mind than that? Uh, no, exactly that type of thing. I mean, just, you know, how you chop up your, it's it, depending on whether it's a user study or, you know, exper or, or maybe just a kind of mining software repositories type study or, or whatever it is, uh, just chopping up your paper into um, easy to digest sections, you know, making sure you have related work, of course, but also making sure the experimental section is laid out in a way that people can reduce it. Uh, yeah, just following these basic, basic templates. Yeah, yeah, no, okay, I get it. Yeah, and it's interesting that you bring that up because it's a, again one of those things in computer science, perhaps also more broadly in the engineering fields, but certainly in computer science, that's 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 kept a bit more flexible in a way. I mean, if you look at again, say chemistry or biology, there there's really no deviation at all. Right. I mean, you, <laughs> it, there isn't. I mean, it's really the, the, the biggest change over the past 15 years has been that the method sections get buried in supplemental or somewhere in the back. Um, but other than that, if result, you know, intro results discussion. There it is. You know, <laughs> whereas if you look at papers, you know, let's say in security or machine learning or AI, you'll often have quite, you know, idiosyncratic subsections, section headings, um, I think you'd have to be a real insider in the field to get, ah, okay, right now we're dealing with the discussion or if there is yeah. even a discussion. Yeah. And I mean, this is exactly the kind of thing I'm talking about it. You know, having just the journal of systems and software gave me like a bit broader perspective uh, than some of the conferences had given me. And you see this kind of variation across different types of papers. And it's just, you know, in most cases, just unnecessary. Like if there, if it was relatively standardized, you know, you're not writing a novel, you're writing a scientific paper. Uh, there can be some room for flexibility, of course, but, you know, you have to kind of have a really good reason to break uh, the template because it just allows people to read your work so much faster. And speaking of, again, your position as editor-in-chief and, and, and your arrival into editing, I mean, you've had very many years now of experience in it, Maybe give us a sense uh, again, and more specifically, um, also career-wise, what what motivated you to to take that turn, and and also how it's affected um, the way that you you view science as it's published, computer science as it's published, your particular field and software and systems. Um, also, in a sense, like uh, being on a broader level, I've heard very many. Editors tell me that, you know, the move to editorship gave them, this is what set this question off of me. You talked about a broader perspective, gave them a broader perspective on things where they had been down deep into the minds of their own particular field. And then in the editorship position, they gained a real sense of, you know, broader communities, full areas and fields of study. 
Yeah, I mean, I'd encourage anybody, especially people starting off in the field, to get involved in the journal editing process, whether it be as a reviewer or eventually as an editor, or just in any way you can. Um, what happens when you start being involved in the machinery of reviewing uh, papers is you just see hundreds of examples. I mean, that's that's the main thing is you are personally seeing hundreds of examples. You're handling them in some way, whether it's reviewing them or handling them as editor. And so you get to kind of come to your own conclusions on what is interesting in the field, what types of papers have real impact, uh, what types of papers are interesting. And it exposes you to sets of papers that you wouldn't otherwise see because you kind of you have a certain set of papers that you're going to see when you're doing your own research uh, but this is almost like a more random set of papers that you're forced to interact with on a relatively deep level and so it's just a good learning experience um, to get a sense of the field and to give us a sense then more specifically of systems and software to get back to this idea of curation i mean you have a very interesting team hierarchy. You've got people who, you know, you know who to go to as a reviewer in, in which area and so on. Systems and software has its, like, um, direction, its aims and scope. Uh, so could you give us a sense of what it is, the content that systems and software is looking for and why? Um, how 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 are you and, and, and Paris sort of curating the direction that the, the journal is heading. Yeah, we review the aims and scopes, you know, every few years or so, and we're, we're trying to keep it relevant, and, but also uh, moving forward a bit. So what do I mean by that? I mean, software engineering has been around for, for a while now, and I think it's important to still do research on um, kind of core software engineering aspects, such as testing, of course. We need to do research on software testing. We we don't write perfect software yet, but there's always these kind of new uh, topics that come up on the edge of software engineering, and we try and help uh, people that are going to submit to JSS to differentiate between the things that are definitely relevant for us and for JSS and and not so relevant. So the things that we've been encouraging lately a little bit more than in the past are things like you know end user programming. Uh, uh, software engineering in the context of education. And those are things that we see at conferences like ICSI that are becoming more prominent. And we encourage those types of topics to fit into JSS. And um, in the past, JSS had had a bit more of a focus on kind of networks and networking a bit. And we've tried to reduce that focus a little because we believe JSS is really thrived as kind of a software engineering type journal. So, you know, we don't do any major shifts, uh, but those are the kind of things we're adding and the things we're taking away recently. No, that's a, that, that's a very clear picture. And I like your idea of along the edges of software engineering. What What is it that there that's happening? Um, it's also interesting to hear that you turn to, say, a conference. You mentioned that ICSI as being a place where you're fielding sensing what's going on out there. Um, is there anywhere else that you look? Because I'm interested in the, let's say, the ecosystem in which uh, JSS finds itself. And, you know, if you, if you imagined it as being a node in a network of different publishing venues, what would be closer or farther? What would have more or less influence on it? Yeah, I mean, well, we definitely interact with ICSI. Just it is the same research community, a lot of the same players as JSS. Um, but we don't uh, just follow it. Like, for instance, ICSI uh, is is very much focused on kind of mining software repository and applying the latest uh, latest thing to software engineering. So, like, you know, large language models are the thing right now, and you'll see that. Almost all papers at ICSI are on that topic, and we uh, and that happens at a conference too, where it's kind of like more trendy. Trendy things have a larger influence on the conference. So we look at ICSI for these kind of broader things, like hey, edu software engineering education is important, end user programming is important, but those are things that have been around for like ten years ish now. Uh, we don't necessarily want to 
I think conferences kind of have this knee jerk reaction where like LLMs have come out. We all need to do LLMs. And one year they'll be all about this one year. They'll be all about that. Uh, so we have kind of a broader, a longer timeline. And that again, brings you back to that idea of, right. The, you have the presidential administration that lasts a month <laughs> or, or you have as, as, as you're describing it, right. A journal that is, you know, an establishment and, and can be set in a direction. Right. And we, I mean, we certainly look at other things besides academic conferences. So that's another thing I wanted to mention. Uh, ICSI is, of course, maybe the conference that we interact the most with. We have a lot of our board meetings there. Um, so that definitely influences us. However, we also are, you know, in touch with a lot of practicing software developers. So we hear what they're talking about. We see what's going on at developer conferences. And if these things a lot of times these things won't show up in software engineering research or, and we'll need to actually encourage them, uh, you know, maybe about changing our aims and scopes. And this also lines up uh, beautifully with some of your own particular interests. I mean, the idea that, you know, you, you like that interplay between industry and academia, right? Yeah, we've definitely tried to uh, get industry involved in JSS as much as possible uh, on the reviewing and editoring, editor side of things. Um, it's challenging, though, because people in industry don't have as much time to dedicate it to towards these kinds of things. But uh, yeah, we do our best to keep in touch with these kinds of people. I mean, it's one of those things about the engineering fields that they do indeed sort of work in practice and also in research. Um, it, it remains that way also in software engineering, I would imagine, right? Yeah, absolutely. And another thing we're trying to do is we do try and push out our work or really the, the work of the community uh, from JSS to the field as much as possible. Of course, we do the kind of more common things like having a Twitter account or having an Instagram account. One thing we've been doing recently, uh, which is interesting and different, I'd say, is we're, we're posting on the uh, on Reddit on R Science. Uh, are you familiar with R Science? Um, I should be, but I'm not. I'll, I'll <laughs> tell, tell us about it. <laughs> yeah, so it's just if you look at the, let's say, I'll, I'll read you the, whoa. I'll read you there like little write-up. It's, this community is a place to share and discuss new scientific research, read about the latest advances in astronomy, biology, medicine, physics, social science, and more. Uh, find and submit new publications and popular science coverage of current research. And what it is, is it's it, their little uh, thing at the top. It says the new Reddit Journal of Science. And for sure, it's not quite that. It's just a place to repost uh, things that have already been published in, you know, regular journals. But it is a place that people like really discuss and look at and even find some, you know, uh, yeah, some real interesting and new research. They only allow you to post things that have been published in the last six months. And it's super heavily mod uh, like moderated in such that you can't put kind of fancy titles. You just basically have to put the name of the paper and a link to the paper. Um, what we found, I've been doing this just for, I don't know, a few months at um, JSS where I'll post, you know, some interesting papers there. And it seems like just posting, you know, the most interesting papers that we, we have at JSS, you know, you'll get, I don't know what views correspond to, but you'll get in the tens of thousands of views on a single paper uh, or paper link. Uh, and so we're getting like reasonable engagement and kind of broad engagement. I don't know who is actually visiting Reddit, whether it's, you know, just people goofing off at work or what, but, you know, you can, you can get a fair amount of people to at least engage uh, superficially with this work and sometimes lots of comments and lots of discussion as well. Well, I mean, they could spend their time goofing off about uh, less valuable things, I imagine, than in software engineering. So that's that's also okay. Uh, no, but uh, this, is, this is very interesting because I think ac academics are certainly starting to look for a place to 
I mean, it had always been Twitter, and now with X, there's you know some disgruntledness out there, and uh, it's not the place necessarily for every field anymore. And social media is here to stay, and a website is not enough. And yeah, no, I mean, and, and and if you look into infometrics and science of science, I've also had such scholars here on the program. The numbers are clear that you know sharing work through social media will increase your citations. You know, so I mean, this is this has impact also in the science itself. It's it's perhaps a sign that you know scientists are certainly amongst those numbers that are reading that work that you're seeing. Yeah, we hope so. But uh, what I found so with Twitter, which is you know of course now X, is that has become certainly less effective in the past you know six months to a year. Uh, but what I found with this Reddit New Journal of Science is interesting, at least right now, is if you are you know if you have a an interesting paper, you know, I don't post every paper from JSS there, but I've posted some uh, reasonably interesting ones there. And you just post the title and the link. Uh, it's a very low effort way of getting you know, substantial attention to your. Um, returning to this ecosystem, I was trying to establish somewhat. I mean, you gave us now a very fine look into let's say, non-academic outlets into conference and industry and so on. But looking into the journal publishing uh, venues that might be situated most closely to JSS, um, is, is, there, is there any way that you could perhaps describe for us how, how you view your nearest neighbors? Or is this not even something that's you know, much of a concern or much on the radar as, as the editor of JSS? Yeah, well, we're certainly not... Uh, too worried about competing with other journals. I mean, there's a, more than enough papers to go around. <laughs> uh, we see over a thousand submissions. I think we see on the order of 1,200 or 1,300 submissions a year. So we are certainly not uh, like uh, angling for more papers. We just see that as part of the community. You know, we see TSE and TOSUM as the two main uh, kind of other journals in the in the area that are more general, um, and yeah, we you know we submit to those journals. We like those journals; they're great, uh, but we don't really see it as a competitive or a zero sum kind of game because there's just a lot of papers to go around, and uh, yeah, so we just see those as kind of partner partners. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> the exponential um, growth of scientific publication is putting people like you in, <laughs> in a position where you're not asking for more. I, I definitely can understand that. Um, but but if you look at TSC and, and, and TOSUM and JSS, are there, let's say, I mean, you were giving us a bit of a feel for, well, we're downplaying now networks. We work closely with ICSI. We, we are interested in software engineering and education. So, I mean, you were giving us a bit of a profile there for JSS. Would you, would you say that you could distinguish, you know, for TOSUM or TSC that, you know, this is rather a TSC paper, you know, this isn't really JSS material, just, oh, just no. on the content level. I mean, I, I would see that. I would say that the same types of papers that go to TSE or TOSE, I feel like those three are all kind of general software engineering papers. Now, when you start looking at like ESIM or other journals that are a bit more specific, like, you know, ESIM is a bit more focused on empirical work. Uh, when you look at those journals have kind of a subset of software engineering that they're interested in, but I see uh, TSE, TOSUM, and JSS as kind of these general software engineering uh, journals. I see. Okay. Right. All right. Um, one thing that I think also to return us back to this idea of my listeners and helping along researchers, particularly people in their earlier career to to navigate the publication right and 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 to do that i often find that it's just helpful to raise awareness um, again getting back to this idea of throwing light inside the black box for them because as you said there's there's no magic here and we're trying to publish great science so again i get back to this idea that i think it's helpful for these early career researchers to really get a feel from someone like you well what's going on there so to be more specific like if we think of editors in let's say your your level two, you know, if they if they if they get in front of them a paper where, you know, they're debating 
You know, are we on rejection level? Are we on a major revision or something like that? What might be some of the things that are going through their minds? And what might be also, particularly from an author's perspective, some of the things that might be helpful for, you know, publication? How could the authors best be be on their best behavior, let's say, <laughs> in that scenario to, to really help the right decision go through? Yeah, I think one of the things, and this is something I'm guilty of as well, is just taking your time. I mean, this is something that comes from uh, journal submissions in general is like knowing when to submit. Um, with conference papers, you know, you just kind of run out of time and the deadline comes and you have to submit. But with journal papers, it's a, a bit more of a challenge of like how much is enough. And what I like to do, you know, let's say in the ideal case, <laughs> I had one of these late recently so I can I can share but usually it's usually it's a bit more chaotic but in the ideal case you know you write a paper you do everything that you would normally do for like a conference submission and then you let it sit for one week and just ignore it and then you come back and do a fresh read and uh and then you know maybe spend one more day or two on it and getting it to just like a really nice place before the first submission um, reviewers and editors notice and appreciate that if it has a bunch of typos and a bunch of things that, you know, time could have just fixed, they're not going to be as understanding or as patient with it really. But if you put time into it before the first submission, I think that, editors are more willing to work with you so it's just you know it's kind of basic manners right like if you expect somebody and especially an editor and multiple reviewers to read your paper you really should put in the time before you make them read your paper that's very good advice and, and very sound i mean I, it, it makes sense you know i mean if you've got a editor who's just trying to make decisions on reviewers and they're also at the same time trying to kind of parse what 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 this really means this particular section in a paper i mean yeah i mean it's it's definitely taxing and in fact i would say you and and this is really open-ended thinking so so jump right in if you like but i mean i would say one of the things is is less let's say language related as to what some people would say sounds nice or style or perhaps even looks nice as opposed to you know, locked up logic, you know, points that line up, things that are in the right place. And simply, you know, when you go, when you're asking the question about something, the answer comes at you. Yeah, it's not about language. So, you know, a lot of uh, scientists are writing in not their first language, and we all understand that. And it's really not about that. Like some of the best papers I've read even have some kind of weird phrases that makes me think and know that maybe they're not from people who English is their first language, but the logic is just so clear that, you know, you don't worry about the kind of little phrasing. Like as an experienced editor, what you look for is just clear logic. That's really what you're looking for. And so it's not necessarily about the little grammatical things like, you know, commas and, and things like that. Although misspellings are still annoying, <laughs> like you shouldn't do that. It's really about having clear logic. And that's why I say, do your paper, let it sit a week and come back to it. Because the logic things are really hard in the crunch of a conference paper where you have this pressing deadline, and you know it's due tomorrow and you're staying up all night, like, logic errors are harder to spot but if you really take your time let it sit a week and then come back to it you realize oh that's there's a big flaw in the logic logical argument here at the intro i need to fix that um and, and having it sit for a week and then coming back to it is it's kind of a great way to attack those problems i mean you're putting your finger on probably one of the let's say strongest elements in the tool writing. And that is, you know, it's, it, it has that memory function, you know, what you wrote a week ago and you return to the next week is not like your thoughts. It's in the exact same form. It's right there, <laughs> yeah, you know, but your thoughts and your critical thinking and, you know, your feelings on things, they're all developing and changing. And, and that's why it's so helpful. This is one of the reasons why I tell people I work with to maximize the period in which you're writing. Because you'll you'll fill more and more holes that way. 
Absolutely. And another thing about writing, we haven't talked so much about writing, but I personally, you know, writing is a big part of any scientist's life, or it has to be because the old Publisher Paris thing. But um, good writing, like you said, takes place over time. I personally try and dedicate every morning from like, I don't know, 9 to 11 to writing whatever I have to write. Uh, you know, for that week, I try to spend 9 to 11, which is my kind of my most awake time uh, writing. And consistently doing that, I think, is a key to what allows me to write things that I am proud of uh, and that have good logic. And it's not, you know, writing two hours a day instead of like eight hours in one day is a lot more powerful for me in the way I work. Some people are deadline driven, but I think that consistency and coming back to your uh, to your logic and reevaluating it is uh, is really key for most people. I think it is too, and there's there's evidence out there to show that that is the best affordance that this the activity of writing gives you. I mean, the the object of writing stays in place. That's you know the nice thing about having something on paper or on a file, but your use of it as you're describing, right? You know, generally hitting it each day, like as if you were a jogger, you know, running a bit each day or working on a foreign language a bit each day, is is the optimization of your use of that tool. Yeah. And that's the number one thing that I think young grad students and young professionals just just don't do is having that constant focus on writing every day. And I mean, this is generally in science that way. Uh, this is a topic that I've explored on this podcast for obvious reasons. I mean, I, I work with scientists, I help them write and I have scientists on this program. So it's, it's one of those <laughs> you know topics that returns. There, there seems to be along the pipeline somewhere in our education systems, and not just in America, that, you know, scientists go the way of non-text and, right, the people in the social studies and in the, in the humanities, definitely, and so on. They go in the way where they're, it's all about text. And this this seems to be such an ill preparation for things to come because, I mean, you've <laughs> here you are, a scientist who is an editor. You are a scientist who writes two hours a day. Yeah, you have a long publication list, and you've reminded us of the dictate, publish or perish. Yeah, and I think what is missing from a lot of scientific minds, I would say, is like a a bit of culture too. So you know, a lot of a lot of educations go through and have like taken out a lot of the humanities or just reading of other topics from the education that happens in engineering a lot where it's just only engineering. And that's a real shame because uh, I have found I've started to read and listen to audiobooks a lot more in the past, let's say decade than I did before. And reading like things that are unrelated to science and especially novels or even science fiction type things, all of the, and historical things, which are, surprisingly similar to scientific things because they have to deal with facts and reporting the facts accurately and things like that. Um, all of this kind of bro more broader reading has dramatically impacted for the better my writing. And I feel like that's something that a lot of scientists aren't doing is trying to read more broadly. That's some wonderful advice and also wonderful um Wonderful habits there that you're in. I mean, it's it's hard for me now to come to the close because, but maybe something else occurs to you. But to close out, I always give my guests, especially when they're in science themselves, like you, the opportunity to take up a mini platform and to speak out to the research in some way that might help things. And I really try to keep it as open as possible. You know, like what, what might change big or small to make papers move along faster through the review process? What big or small might happen in the publishing industry that's, you know, doing all of this work for us in, in um, bringing papers out to people so that they can do their research so that it goes better um, in teaching, you know, really anywhere along the line. Um, so is there still something that, that would occur to you there that you think, hey, that would really actually help things? Mm, I would say for me, one thing that's important to keep in mind, we've been talking about writing and you know academic research 
one thing that's important to keep in mind is the ultimate impact on the world. For me, the thing that I'm most proud of in my career is this um, Wizard Easy Programming, which is just an easy way to program APB robots. And that's a project that I did as a research project um, when I was working with ABB. And now it's something that sells with the robots. It's just a simple block-based way to program robots. Um, well, that's something that started out as research and it has now come into practice. And for me, that serves as a reminder of like, kind of some meaningful impact. Not that writing papers certainly can be very meaningful as well, but for me, it becomes even more meaningful when it is something that actually becomes a product or affects a product or uh, affects the way that future people make their products. It doesn't have to be as clean as the ABB example, because obviously I was working for a company then. Um, but when you see your work that has a great paper behind it and now has a product behind it, that is, uh, you know, just a meaningful contribution to the world. And I encourage people to seek out these kind of dual contributions instead of just focusing on the paper. I really like that. I, I don't normally comment once I've given the platform, but I really like. But I have to hear because um, I, I really like the broad view that you're talking about. I mean, you, you've continually referred out to industry, to the impact broader on society, to fo following up cultural pursuits, literature, as you mentioned, and so on, and and how all of this flows into your research. And you know, we hear about diversity, we hear about you know well-being in scientists and. Uh, you're giving us, you know, some concrete details in your own life as to how that plays out. Yeah, well, I think uh, we're all in this science thing together, and it's it's good to share some things that have worked, you know, for me that hopefully can work for other people. Well, thank you very much for that, David. That is David Shepard, Editor-in-Chief of Journal of Systems and Software. And thanks, too, to you, my listeners. Bye-bye, and until next time here on Scholarly Communication. <laughs>